Well, it's a delight to be here at Central. I'm Robbie Griggs. I was a pastor here for, well, in the, in the church for, gosh, 11 years. Um, pastor for about nine, so it's wonderful to be back. It's been about a decade since we left. It doesn't seem that long ago. Um, so it's wonderful to be with you all this morning and to see a lot of familiar and also new faces. We're going to be in a Hebrews 11 this morning, so if you've got a Bible and you want to open it up, please go ahead or you can look in your bulletin. Hebrews 11 is one of those chapters in the New Testament that serves as a kind of bridge. Everything that comes before this chapter is pretty dense theological meditation with some commands and some exhortations kind of littered, and then we go from Hebrews 11 where we're considering the heroes of the faith of the Old Testament to a sustained exhortation from that point on. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Sarah. But because Abraham and Sarah go together in Genesis and in the Bible, we're going to look at two verses in Hebrews 11, verses 11 and 12. And the question we're going to be asking is the same question that the author of this letter is asking, and it's this. How can we learn to live by faith in Sarah's God? Look with me in your Bible or your bulletin. I'm going to read the first, um, the first three uh, verses that kind of set the, the, of, of Hebrews 11 that set the stage for everything that follows, and then we'll skip down to verse 11. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to receive from you what you have for us from your holy word that we might be encouraged in Christ and that we might love you, praise you, honor you, and love our neighbors. It's for his name we pray, amen. Well, big question for you. Have you ever run out of time? I've been thinking a lot about time management these days. My eldest son is headed off to college this fall and his last hours in the house are rushing by. And then there's all the deadlines. The deadline for sending in the student ID picture, the deadline for paying the deposit. They are all these deadlines running toward us at full speed. I've never been good with deadlines. As a recovering perfectionist, I'm prone to procrastination. I need the pressure to force me to shut down my inner critic to force me to act. Well, this way of managing perfectionism by playing chicken with the deadline doesn't always work out. <laughs> Sometimes you run out of time. In the spring of 1999, I was finishing up the first of my two senior years 
at the University of Missouri in Columbia. I was a finance and philosophy major, so double major, but that spring in the victory lap year and in the victory lap year to follow, I was taking all philosophy classes. So I was writing a lot of papers. Now, I don't recommend this to my students, but my own approach to writing papers at the time went roughly like this. Budget one hour per page, begin the night before the paper is due such that you finish around 2 a.m. And that was really important. Needed to finish around 2 a.m. Get a few hours of sleep, go back to the computer lab, proofread, print, and submit the hard copy in class. Now, surprisingly, this worked for me <laughs> until one night when it didn't. I remember it very, very clearly. It was a five-page paper evaluating Hillary Putnam's famous brain in a vat hypothesis. I was in the arts and sciences computer lab. Things were going smoothly. It was around 1 a.m. I had four pages right on target to finish the last page on time until I realized that there was a fatal flaw in my argument. That's when the panic set in. The paper was due in class at 8 a.m. I could not rewrite the paper because I would not have time to sleep. And if I didn't sleep, there was no guarantee that the draft wouldn't have horrific mistakes in it. Cue the inner critic shouting, screaming, it won't be good enough. It was too late. I had run out of time. Have you ever run out of time? Have you ever felt that anxiety in the pit of your stomach when you wonder, is it too late? Our passage this morning is about this question we all face. Is it too late? Thankfully, and this is the big idea of the sermon, it's not too late. In fact, it's never too late. Living by faith in Sarah's God means trusting that because God is who he is, it is never too late. Now, the first thing I want to draw your attention to is that even though we only have two verses here, our text makes a very important connection to the way Moses tells the story of Sarah in the book of Genesis. In Hebrews 11.11, we hear that Sarah was past the age. In other words, she had already been through menopause and was biologically speaking, unable to conceive a child. Now, if for sake of brevity, one chose only one detail to highlight from Sarah's life, this is a good candidate because the advanced age of Sarah and Abraham comes up over and over in the book of Genesis. Moses tells us that Abraham was 75 when he left for Canaan. Abraham was 85 when Sarah gave her son Hagar as a surrogate mother uh, in order to produce an heir. Abraham was 86 when Ishmael was born. 13 years later, God tells the 99-year-old Abraham that his roughly 90-year-old wife Sarah will have a child. And just so the reader gets the point of recounting all these ages, Moses gives a narrative aside in Genesis 18, 11. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old. <laughs> Advanced in years. 
the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Now, this aside comes right in the middle of a key episode in Sarah's story. You see, she's listening in as Abraham receives the message from God's angels that in about a year, she will give birth to a child. And what is Sarah's response? She cracks up. She laughs. Now, how might we think about Sarah's laughter? Well, on one level, it makes perfect sense. She's about to consider something that is absurd. 100-year-old men and 90-year-old women don't typically have biological children at that age. But there's more to it than that. The text says, Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Now, the Hebrew word here is not exactly clear what she means by that. Uh, it can be translated pleasure or delight. It, she, it, she could be referring to sexual satisfaction. At this advanced age, am I to have this kind of experience? She could be referring to the delight of having a child that she had long hoped for. It could be a double entendre. It could be both. The Bible is not above making those kinds of jokes. <laughs> what is clear is that Sarah considers that part of her life over. The idea that she might look forward to the joy of a child in her old age is just too much. So she laughs. She has moved on. It's too late. We're too old for all that. Now, what happens next is fascinating. The angel calls Sarah out for her doubt in front of Abraham saying, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Now, Sarah lies and denies that she laughed to herself, but the angel persists, saying, no, but you did laugh. The question that Sarah needs to ponder is this, is anything too hard for Yahweh? In other words, she needs, to, as hard as it might be, she needs to stop thinking about the human limitations of her situation and focus instead on the one who is making the promise. I was trying to think about a way to illustrate Sarah's shock and the idea that came to mind was um, these videos. Have you, maybe you've seen these little videos. It's the videos of little kids who are kind of infant toddler range um, and they have, uh, they have trouble, vision trouble, right? And it's the video of when the, the doctor or the parent takes the little cute glasses with the goggles and the, you know, the kids sitting there and they can barely hold their heads up and they're kind, of, you know, they're, they're kind of going around like this. They're not really focusing on anything. When they get the glasses over the kid's eyes, all of a sudden the head stops moving yeah. and the eyes get big and usually there's a smile and a giggle and sometimes a squeak and regularly happy t 
tears. Sarah had given up on having children, even though the Lord had promised her a child with Abraham. She couldn't see how it could possibly work, but God graciously gave her a new way of seeing her situation, one that reminded her that his power and not her age was the determining factor. And she did come to see things God's way. That's why she's in chapter 11 of Hebrews. About a year later, as, as God had promised, they named their baby boy Isaac, which means he laughs. So the first thing we need to know in order to live by faith in Sarah's God is very simple. It's not too late. It's never too late. It's not too late because the Lord is the creator God. Our limitations cannot defeat his purposes. And if he has called us to something, he will see it through. Despite our doubts, despite our limitations. And if we laugh at the absurdity of it all, he will help us to look beyond ourselves to his creative power. Is there something you know God is calling to you, you to do, but you fear to face it, that you think maybe it's too late? Perhaps it's a conversation with a, a grandchild. Perhaps it's a call to your parents. Your relationship's broken down. Perhaps it's admitting a wrong that you did to a friend. What might it look like for you to start believe, believing and acting as though God is the primary factor in the situation you've lost hope in? What might it look like to trust in God's creative power to change things? The author of Hebrews commends Sarah as a hero of the faith because she believed in the creator God even when she was past the age. Even after concluding that it was too late for her to receive the things God had promised, it was not too late for her to start over with God at 90 years old and believe again. But there's another reason it's never too late, and that reason is because God is merciful to the weak. Also in Hebrews 11, 11, we read, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. Now, given all the references and appeals of the Old Testament in Hebrews, it's pretty clear that a lot of the audience for this letter would have had a deep familiarity with Sarah's story. And one of the things that they would have known is that it was not just Sarah's old age that made God's promise of a child seem absurd. The whole story of Abraham and Sarah begins an absurdity. The very first detail Moses gives us about Sarah is that she is barren. And what comes immediately after that detail in Genesis 12 are these huge promises that all have to do with people. 
And they all have to do with the people that are going to come from these two. It's like God said, all right, I'm going to put a big question mark on this at the very beginning. God could have chosen anyone, but he chose an old man and his barren wife. Why? We've already seen one answer. In Sarah, God's creative power is underlined. God is saying, it's not too late because I am able. But also in Sarah, God's mercy for the weak is magnified. God is saying, it's not too late because I'm able and I care. In the ancient Near East, to be barren was not simply a personal disappointment. It was an economic catastrophe. Virtually all businesses at this time in human history are family businesses. And without children, there is no workforce. In other words, Abraham and Sarah were vulnerable economically especially since God had taken them from their extended family and sent them into a new and foreign land. But it's not just an economic crisis, it's also an existential crisis. To have no children is to have no heirs, and to have no heirs is to face the dissolution of your family. And to face the dissolution of your family, with that comes the disappearance of shared memory and values and all the things that give meaning to someone's life. In other words, Sarah's story is a story not only of God's compassion for her, it is also a story of God's rescue of her family. Because God is a God of mercy for the weak. It is never too late. We see this theme of God's mercy on the weak in the song of another barren mother in the Old Testament. Just before the reign of King David, there was a godly woman named Hannah. Hannah wasn't able to conceive a child, but she appealed to God for mercy on her condition, and God answered. And Hannah, after receiving her promised son Samuel, says things like this. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. God delights to show mercy to the weak. 
So it is never too late to depend on God and seek his favor. Living by faith in Sarah's God means believing that God is compassionate toward us in our weaknesses. It means asking for his help and expecting it. But that means that we have to admit that we need help. And that is a hard thing for many of us to do. You know, I served, I know a lot of you guys, I served here for a while. You're accomplished people. You're used to getting things done. You have knowledge and skills and friends, and you're used to using those things to solve problems, to take ground, to make progress. So for some of us, when we think of ourselves, we think of who we are and what we can do, weak is not exactly the word we would prefer to describe ourselves with. I get it. I don't like feeling weak. I don't like thinking of myself as weak. It feels too much like making excuses, like playing the victim. Let me take your mind back to that arts and sciences lab at Mizzou 20 plus years ago where I sat at 1 a.m. panicking over my philosophy paper with the fatal flaw. Maybe you wondered earlier, what did he do? How did it end up? Well, after I realized that would I, I would not be able to rewrite the paper, I started after, I sat there for about 10 minutes, and I started to explore salvage options. I had read enough philosophy by this point to recall that sometimes philosophers will actually give flawed versions of their arguments in order to strengthen them by refuting, strengthen them by refuting criticisms. So that's what I decided to do. Name the fatal flaw in the next to last page of the paper, spend the rest of the paper making arguments to the fact that the flaw was only a flesh wound. The, the paper is not actually bleeding out on page four. It is a minor cut, I promise. It can survive, and here's how. Well, my professor thought that move was clever, and he thought the arguments that I made at least suggested that the main argument might not be DOA. So I got an A, and I was thrilled. I thought, I made it, I survived. Well, if you're familiar with Sarah's story, you may recall that she and Abraham attempt to make a number of similarly clever moves. As God delays giving them what he promised, they come up with a series of salvage operations. We've mentioned one of them already towards the beginning of the sermon. As Sarah was running out of time and in the process of giving up on God's promise, a promising strategy occurred to her. What if I give my servant Hagar to Abraham as a surrogate? She says to Abraham in Genesis 16, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Well, this plan works and it doesn't. Hagar conceives, and as soon as she conceives, she starts to show contempt for Sarah. Sarah gets mad, 
and mistreats Hagar, driving her away. But God hears Hagar in her distress, sends her back to Sarah and Abraham, and so Abraham receives a son through Hagar, Ishmael, which means he hears. So God hears, he even has mercy on Hagar, but he does not accept this strategy. They don't get an A for being clever. The surrogacy is not defensible. No, God insists on fulfilling his promise through a child born to Sarah. Why? It's not that God is against human cleverness. The point, and it is a very specific one here, is that human cleverness is not enough. It is not enough for the deep things of life. Here's what I mean. Sarah's barrenness is not just about her desire for a child. It's not even just about the salvation of her family. It is also symbolic. It represents one of the effects of the fall, one of the effects of the human race's estrangement from God. Now, I wanna be very careful here because this is a very tender subject for many of us. I'm not saying that her infertility is her fault. That's not the point. But when we see God give a child to a barren mother in the Bible, that gift always happens within a larger context of human sin and rebellion against God. Just prior to Sarah's story, you have the Tower of Babel. In the middle of her story, you get God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Hannah receives Samuel in a time when the priests who serve in God's tabernacle are godless and corrupt. And Samuel is to be a prophet, both a symbol of where life is to be found and an instrument calling God's people back to faith in him. The same is true of John the Baptist, another child born to a barren mother, born into a context where God's people have drifted away from him into sin and rebellion. By insisting on giving Isaac to Abraham through Sarah, God is telling his people, he is telling us that the deepest problems in our lives are entirely outside of our control. You and I cannot solve our sin problem. For the deep things in life, we must trust God. One last little, few little points and we'll close. Even at 90 years old, it was not too late for Sarah to humble herself and to begin to entrust herself to God for the deepest things in her life. Our text tells us that that's exactly what she did and here was the result, verse 12. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. 
But we also read in the very next verse this. Even Sarah died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. What did Sarah have at the end of her life? She had Isaac. But through Isaac, she had a renewed relationship with the God of life, who had made these promises that were far bigger than her, far bigger than her story, that went much deeper than she could have imagined. And the deepest problem we all face is this one that's named in our text. She died in faith. Here's the amazing thing about Sarah's story as it's told to us here in Hebrews. Even in death, it is not too late. Because living by faith in Sarah's God means greeting the coming of Jesus. The deepest problem we all face in life is simple to name but impossible for us to solve. It is the problem of the waywardness of our hearts and lives. It is the problem of our bondage to death. It is the problem of thinking we can manage things just fine on our own without God. And ultimately, we all run out of time. But living by faith in Sarah's God means greeting the coming of Jesus. And in Jesus, it's never too late, even the end because he has conquered sin and death. We can entrust ourselves to him, the Lord of life. If you have been drifting from God, it's not too late to entrust yourself to Jesus. With God, it's never too late. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your power and your mercy and your willingness, Lord, to be God in our lives. I pray that you would help us to entrust ourselves to you in the small things and in the deep things. For Jesus' sake and for our good. Amen.